Jordan Lips. Wow. It's been a, it's been a long time in the making this episode. I'm, I'm so pumped you're here. Thank you for coming, dude. I, um, I can't thank you enough. Yeah, man. I appreciate, I appreciate being here. It's a, we'll have a good chat. I know it will be a good, a good chat. Yeah, totally. Potentially a few different directions. Like, of course, I brought you on for your newfound love, endurance running. Uh, just kidding. Yeah, for all the people who don't know Jordan, uh, he's I'm a cardio bunny now. Notoriously been, uh, uh, I think even in one of your early podcasts, like it was something called like why I hate cardio or why I hate running or something like that. It was probably three, four years ago, whenever it was. Uh, and now Jordan has dipped his feet into the, you know, endurance world and is learning a lot about that, which is cool. I think it just shows the evolution of you as a coach and just the people in the space, how, I don't know, we can always get so narrow minded with what we care about and just further bias that with our, with our research, with our practice and and the people that we work with. But it's just a kind of a testament to you, in my opinion, on your ability to learn, grow and like change the thoughts that you've had around, um, just like your own health and fitness journey. So I, um, I appreciate you being here. I've talked about you a handful of times on the podcast itself for the people who do not know, like this is the Jordan lips that I talk about who has been my coach, I think for like what the last three years now, almost, which is fucking crazy to say out loud. Crazy. Yeah. But, um, very grateful for our time. Very excited to have you on here to chat, just, um, going in maybe the more of the sciencey direction talking about muscle. We're going to maybe bring you on for an endurance podcast in the future, but, uh, yeah, I'd love to talk about the muscle building side of things, but for the people who have no idea who you are been living under a rock, please just give your little intro to yourself and we'll kind of go from there. Yeah. Jordan lips, uh, personal trainer, uh, MNU certified nutritionist, uh, hypertrophy snob, uh, turned cardio bunny and uh, also a podcaster and content creator and, all that good stuff. And, uh, yeah, that's me. Yeah. Pretty basic. I, I yeah. feel like a lot of us share similar, um, I don't know. I don't want to say titles, but like when it comes to lifting MNU, I think is kind of a, um, a certification for, from a nutrition standpoint, if you're not a dietitian now that I've been immersed in it, I know you've done it. You were kind of the person that pointed me towards it. Very grateful for that. But man, if I, if I get a majority of the people who come on to the podcast, I'm like, Hey, what do you do? It's like, Oh, I, I help people like lift or exercise and, you know, eat better or do these things. Like, I feel like we all have the same intro story, but, um, yep. just I don't waste too much time on it. Yeah. Yeah. I laugh because that's kind of, uh, the intro that I, I appreciate. Cause like the 10 minute long intros of like, Oh, I did all these things. And this is where I'm at. I don't really think people give a fuck about that anymore. You know, I mean, um, at some level it's, uh, it's cool, but people care more about what you have to give and what you have to offer. So yeah, I just, I found myself cracking up. I feel like that would be the same intro that I give, even though I have seven years of schooling under my belt now at this point. Right. You know? Yeah. That's oh, it. yeah. You, um, you're big into the hypertrophy realm. Just maybe tell, tell us a little bit more about how you got into that at least. So I think that's going to kind of help play into why we're talking about what we're talking about today and how you've kind of committed your life almost to studying this topic, but what was like the impetus for you to get into that? If, if you had a moment or kind of a collection of moments over time, man, I mean, let's be, let's just be blunt here. We're not beating around bushes, uh, completely and utterly an egotistical pursuit at the start, completely like chasing girls and like just identifying as a personal trainer. And, and when you are a personal trainer, you are, you know, told that your body's your business card and, uh, there's just this idea of walking the walk and, you know, living the life and, you know, you can hide behind those two things. Not, I say hide behind, but, you know, for a very, very, very long time, I just talked about this on 
Instagram the other day. Very, 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 very long time. That was my identity. It was like the way I looked and it was my body was my business card. And I thought it was like most important thing. And I sacrificed a ton and you know, having a six pack or whatever it was, was like incredibly important. And so listen, hypertrophy is hypertrophy training is the pursuit of, you know, building muscle. And, and that kind of just went into that goal a ton. And so naturally it began as a purely egotistical aesthetic pursuit. And yeah, egotistical aesthetics doesn't, just because you care about aesthetics doesn't mean you're an egomaniac. It doesn't. I was an egomaniac though. I'm not saying they're the same, but that certainly was how this began. Purely needing to be, you know, shredded 24 seven, all that stuff. It actually had a negative impact on my health. We don't need to go through that now. Um, but in, what's funny is like the, there's a lot of people in the space right now talking about how, about like optimal hypertrophy. How do you get the best gains? How do you make the most gains? How do you make the fastest gains? And the interesting thing is uh, I, I don't really give a shit anymore about like, uh, it's hard to say that. I, I'm not really worried about, I don't care about growing any more muscle. I don't care about being any leaner than I am right now at all. Um, but I'm still extremely interested in um, how to grow muscle optimally. However, my motivation now comes from my 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 second character trait after Eagle Maniac was was lazy as shit. And so what I mean is that like now I I want to be now I'm so interested about how to do something optimally. But what I'm really interested in doing is 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 training is building muscle most efficiently. So I care about what's most effective because it will let me do less. And right now my goal is to maintain muscle. I'm pushing some cardio work. Um, and so I'm still as interested as ever in hypertrophy but instead of trying to grow as much muscle as possible i'm interested in how can i do the least amount and still maintain or still grow and again that's myself i run a group program where we make gains and my clients we make gains that's just my own personal kind of uh goals at the moment so i'm i'm fascinated building muscle now in my in my later life we're about to have a baby i'm turning into dad mode i'm thinking more about my health i'm thinking more about what 90 year old me would want and so connecting a lot more with the what lifting is going to do for me quality of life wise health wise um and and finding a way at the moment to do as little as possible and maintain the muscle that i've built so i can make room for other things in my life and that's just where i'm at right now if people are in different places i always want to put this caveat if like you're you have a lot of aesthetic goals right now there's just like, at, at base value there is nothing wrong with that i don't there's nothing wrong with that you shouldn't feel like there's anything wrong with that i don't look down on that in some way that's cool. Um, at where I'm at, not necessarily a super high priority. Yeah, for sure. It just goes to drive the point that like the purpose and why you do things can change over time. And it honestly should change over time. And it's funny because like what you do might not be super different if you were still that same egomaniac person that just continued to learn and, and nerd out over everything. But it's just like, yeah, the intention in which you're doing things now, the the life experience that you had. I think, I think people get caught up into this this mindset of what when it comes to the health and fitness, at least, is like you're always running this marathon of sprints almost, you know. And uh, you know, it's kind of cliche to say, but there's always these uh these moments in your life that just like turn the path a little bit more. You start to create a new different path. And uh man, it, it sometimes gets you at the same uh, you know, destination as what you would you know, have done in a different mindset or in a different, you know, world to, with less priorities or more priorities or whatever it is. But, uh, it's this lifelong pursuit of like, Hey, why is this important to me? What am I getting out of this? And how can I, you know, as a coach, like make sure the people that I work with are getting the most out of our time together and the training that they're doing and, and, you know, leave a, a, a better person than when, where we started with. And, uh, I kind of felt like that's been my evolution a little bit in a sense of like, 
just so curious, always uh, so extreme sometimes with certain um, approaches just to kind of fucking fuck around and find out for yourself almost at some level. Um, but then just like being able to come back to a place where you're, you're kind of enjoying what you're doing and appreciating like what this whole health and fitness pursuits can offer you. Cause like you alluded to, man, it's, it's a quality of life improvement. It's what is future me going to be able to do. It's how can I be around and better for the kids? You know, you, you mentioned you're you know, having a baby here. Congratulations here pretty soon. But, um, yeah, it's just kind of funny to see how the evolution of, you know, the intention and why we do things can change, um, and how those take place. But I feel like people tend to have a similar story as that they get into it for a reason. And then they completely, they do it completely for different other reasons as they, uh, continue to, to push down that path. But what would you say has like been the biggest thing that you've kind of changed your, um, approach on when it comes to hypertrophy, if anything, cause I know you said, Hey, getting, getting down to the, what can I do to maximize my return on my investment, um, while doing the least I can do possible. Right. Like how is that, has that mindset changed over time in the beginning? Were you somebody who maybe was like, Hey, we have to do this. This is what's optimal. And this is what we, um, might be able to, to do to maximize your progress. Or is, has that kind of evolved with just kind of how you've learned and approached everything over time? I think I'm, I was, I, I'm one of my early mentors from afar, not somebody that actually mentored me, but somebody that I just was obsessed with was, was the RP guys, Dr. Mike guys. Um, they talked a lot about, you know, this optimal hypertrophy range of, you know, two to four RIR and that training to failure isn't necessarily the best way to do things because it's very fatiguing and, and the stimulus to fatigue ratio is not great and all this stuff. And I really bought into that. And so I spent a lot of years doing like, you know, sub-maximal training with quite a few RIR so I could do more sets. And I'm not saying that that won't work. It sure as shit will work. But for me, I used to, it, basically the understanding was that going to failure would be would be exponentially more fatiguing for less benefit. So it would be a bad trade. But I just don't think I ever tested that hypothesis with myself. And what I found is that it, for me, and it's not like I've made some like monumental finding here, but like, depends on the exercise. Like if I'm doing uh, an RDL and I take it really just like whatever technical failure really is, that's a really, really hard set. Um, between the fact that it's working a lot of muscles, there's spinal loading, you know, there's bracing involved. It's, 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 it requires a lot of focus and intent. It's highly technical as far as hypertrophy training goes. That can be a really, really tough set. And doing two RIR, you know, feels 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 okay. It feels exponentially easier, but I might be able to get most of the benefits there. What I'm trying to say is that I don't think that that pans out when we talk about like very high stability movements, isolation exercises. And I've found that in at least in my pursuit of being able to do less, what you have to do is you have to get more out of each set. If you want to do less sets and spend less time in the gym, you need to find time saving, saving strategies and also ways to increase the per set stimulus. And going to failure on like a bicep curl versus a bicep curl at two RAR, like to me, the fatigue is entirely the same. Like it does going to failure on a bicep curl doesn't take heaven and earth, doesn't take a lot of emotional gusto and like, you know, doesn't wear me out emotionally. Um, and so I found that very gently I've moved towards pushing harder on, and I don't want to be too over general, but isolation exercises, certainly short position work, things that high, have higher stability. 
Um, because I don't find that the gap between going close, I don't find that as you get closer to failure, things get that much more fatiguing. And as somebody who is looking for efficiency over people, every, you know, everybody wants to talk about optimal gains. I'll tell you right now, it's not a person listening to this podcast that's going to do what it takes for optimal gains. We, we are crapped out by time. You know, nobody's training, you know, 10 times a week. Like what, what's probably optimal is like multiple days of two days, shorter sessions, like all this stuff that you probably wouldn't do. So you're doing what I'm doing. You're just not viewing it that way, which is trying to learn what's optimal, but then forgetting it to, to a, that, you know, you have to take that from a lab setting or from like some other smart person who said something and apply it to your life. And so for me, not wanting to exceed, you know, a certain amount of time, like going closer to failure, especially on high stability, single joint movements, where going to failure doesn't tax me emotionally, systemically, nearly as much as a barbell back squat might, um, has been just an awesome thing. And frankly, you know, when, when possible, even pushing beyond failure into partial reps, um, you know, myo reps, intensity techniques. So the utilization of gently pushing a little bit closer to failure on exercises that I don't find to be very fatiguing regardless, and the utilization of more intensity techniques. So you can fit in more stimulus in the same amount of time. So a better stimulus to time ratio, whatever, um, have been two really, really key things that have allowed me to, let's face it, just spend less time training and maintaining for a while I was gaining recently, I brought my volume down to like 90 minutes a week. Uh, you know, at peak, I was doing, you know, five to six sessions, 90 minutes each. I think I'm at 90 minutes a week. And and uh, if you told me I lost a little bit of muscle over the years going from, you know, going down to 20% of the work I was doing, you'd probably be correct. But man, it is crazy what you can do with less if you train smart and hard, good exercise selection, all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, like you said, most people listening to this aren't going to be the bodybuilders trying to squeeze out every percentage of, of, you know, training and progress that they could potentially get. Of course, there are a handful of those people out there, not usually the people that I work with or the people that listen to this podcast, at least. Um, so the people who do listen to this, it's like, Hey, there's a lot to uh, it, it's kind of a cool idea that like, Hey, there's a lot of progress to be made by doing a little bit less and doing things more intelligently. And we kind of talk about all of these things, um, related to this big overarching concept of like, we're trying to build more muscle at the very minimum, maintain the muscle mass that we have because having more muscle on your frame has a plethora of health benefits, not to mention your vanity benefits and everything that can kind of come alongside that as well. But this whole concept of like, how to build muscle, why we should build muscles, kind of like why we talk about all these things like volume and exercise selection and your biomechanics and load management and um, RIR and what tempo you're using. Like it's all done with the intention of like, Hey, can we build muscle and get the most out of our training? Cause that's what a lot of people are after here. Um, taking kind of a small pivot. I think it, I think it'd be helpful for us to even just talk about like how muscle is actually even built before we maybe get into a little bit more of the hypertrophy side of things. Um, even from an intellectual standpoint, I think it's fun for people to, to sometimes know what's going on under the hood. I, I think that could be a dangerous place for a lot of people. This like information overload and, and thinking things are more important, or you should know how muscle is being built. Um, so you can better, you know, implement that into your life. It goes same with nutrition, what single ingredients do, what your blood sugar is doing after a meal. Like the, the goal of this conversation is not for people to think that they have to know more. Like we're not fucking Andrew Huberman sitting up here. Um, talk about all these things that you don't really actually need to know, but I think it's kind of fun because 
at a general level, man, there's a lot of principles that go into building muscle. And it's not always just this one thing, um, this whole bro or like, um, philosophy of like, oh yeah, you just constantly break down your muscle tissue. You cause these micro tears. I'm curious, is that, is that what's only happening? Is there more to the story? If you could just tell somebody sitting here, listening to this, like how is muscle actually built, right? Like what are the inputs that go into this? I don't want to make this like a mechanism type podcast episode, but just surface level stuff. Like how would you answer the question of like, how is muscle actually built? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your first kind of, um, preamble there about like the, the kind of potential dangers of thinking you need to know mechanistically about how everything works. is like, I'll have people all the time, not all the time, but even people in my own life that are like, well, then how does that work? And how does that work? And how does that work? And I'm like, you know, there, there is, there is a point of, of, of where I'm okay, not knowing. We'll talk about the protein. We're talking about this muscle building in a second. That's not where this, that's not where I draw this line, but there are certainly things in my life where I'm okay with like, Hey, like, what is my, where do I fall in the dissemination of information hierarchy from like guy who does research all the way down to like the consumer? There's, there's like person who does, who does research and writes the paper. Then there's like Alan Aragon who like reviews the paper. Then there's like me and you who like read Aragon's review and we read, we read direct research as well. But, um, you know, it just, there is a point in understanding that it's like, you don't need to know mechanistically every single freaking thing. Now, when, when we are talking about building muscle, I think that there's some, again, it could be cool to have a decent understanding of some of these terms that you might see. And I think that there's some benefit of like not feeling overwhelmed when you see that. How would I describe this without committing the same sin that I just mentioned of like obsessing over the mechanisms here? So I'd probably say that muscle is built when rates of muscle protein synthesis outpace rates of muscle protein breakdown. And, and what that means is you have protein is always being turned over. You have protein breakdown that's always happening. Muscle protein breakdown, muscle protein breakdown, muscle tissue breakdown. It's always being broken down. Those proteins being broken down to amino acids going off to do other things in the body. And that's always happening, always. And you could imagine like a house that's being like torn down and built back up at the exact same time. And you have muscle protein synthesis. Synthesis just means like the creation of, and so the creation of muscle proteins. So you have two things that are happening. One is in the plus column, one is in the minus column. Those two things are always happening at the same time. And so if you want to grow muscle tissue, you need the plus to outpace the minus. You need the synthesis of new muscle tissue to outpace the breakdown of muscle tissue. And I think what can be helpful is to understand, well, how can you impact those two equations? or those two parts of the equation, because you can, if you say, okay, I need muscle protein synthesis to be greater than muscle protein breakdown, you can do that in two ways. You can decrease the breakdown or you can increase the synthesis. And I think, you know, for people listening, the two things that increase muscle protein synthesis uh, the most are eating protein and the training stimulus itself. And the thing that decreases muscle protein breakdown the most is eating enough calories. And so, you know, when we talk about the tri the tri the holy triumvirate of building muscle, it's eating enough calories, eating enough protein, and the training stimulus. Those the training stimulus and eating protein are going to boost muscle protein synthesis. And not or what we could say is being in a deficit increases rates of muscle protein breakdown. That's why, you know, we talk a lot about like make sure you're lifting and eating protein so that you don't lose muscle as you lose weight. Um and so that does kind of, you know, that is like that holy triangle of. Uh, you know, the things that are going to help you build muscle. Um, 
anything else on muscle protein synthesis and breakdown? Um, you know, if I had to, the way I think of it is that the protein that you eat is, is permissive. It creates an environment in which you can build muscle. Eating protein on its own is not going to build muscle. You need the training stimulus. And I think it's incorrect to say that one of those two things is more important because if you have no protein, you're not going to build a lot of muscle. If you have no training stimulus, you'll build no muscle at all. Um, and so you really do need both. But what I would say is that I think, I think that if, you know, if you had to rank them based on integrating like what you see practically with people, I think it's fair to say that, again, there's, there's an intellectual way to break down this argument here, but the training stimulus is way more powerful, way more powerful. Um, and, and that, what I mean is that, you, you know, we talk a lot about eating enough protein to build maximum muscle, but even if you ate less than what is optimal with protein, the training stimulus is such a robust booster of muscle protein synthesis that it is, I would say more important, although of course you need both. Anything else, any, any deeper we want to go on that? I don't think so. I think, I think the fact that like, Hey, this is always going to be multifactorial. It's not this only this one thing that people can sometimes get caught up in like, Oh, I just, I have to be perfect with my training or I have to be perfect with all my macros. Um, at some level, like they all build off one another, but, and not to say that it's like this multiplication by zero effect, but yeah, if you don't have a baseline minimum of some of these certain inputs, then you're not going to see the progress or the results that you're working so damn hard for. Um, and in that same breath, I want people to appreciate the fact that the bar is actually kind of low in terms of what we're able to, um, get out of our training. If we're, you know, increasing our protein, if we're hitting some of these like lower numbers, like you can see some pretty cool progress by not being perfect with all these things all the time. And from, if we look at the nutrition side of things, we talk about calories. Great. Yeah. If, like if you're eating enough, even if you're eating at maintenance in a small surplus, of course, being in a surplus is going to help and make this more of a, uh, an optimal environment for you to build muscle over time. Um, but even eating at maintenance, right? Like if you're not in a deficit, you're not as, as much risk for, um, pulling from your muscle essentially to like break that down and be in this more, um, you know, negative kind of protein balance that can happen over time. But the thing with protein is like the day-to-day -day intake of protein is, is a lot more important compared to maybe the totality of calories that you eat, um, over the course of the week or let me take that back. The day-to-day -day protein is more important than what your daily calorie intake is. As long as your calories are kind of getting at this like general range at the end of the week, the protein is not something that you could make up for necessarily. Maybe, Hey, I have 50 grams of protein today. I can eat 180, you know, in two days or next tomorrow. And that can maybe make up for the last three days that I haven't eaten a ton of protein. That's where like this whole protein conversation, I think is a little bit more relevant because we have to appreciate the fact that like. We're, your body needs a certain amount of protein daily. And if you're not giving it that man, some of the other things that you're doing in the gym, even if you're eating enough calories, like you might be leaving some progress on the table or just not getting the ultimate benefit of what we're looking for, which is maintaining or building a little bit of muscle over time. Yeah. You, you, what you, what you were saying, just, just confirming you're like it protein intake doesn't necessarily work on a weekly average. It is more of a daily, a daily goal, a daily allowance. There would be people that would go as far as to say it's actually more of like on an every four to six hour. Uh, if you're trying to like, like, even if you're like, oh, it's a daily goal. Gotcha. I can't have 50 today and 300 tomorrow. And that's the same as 175 each day. It's not the same. But what's also not the same is having three, you know, 175 in one meal or 175 in three meals. Uh, we do see that 
you know, in order to maximize the muscle protein synthetic response, we just talked about muscle protein synthesis, to maximize the MPS benefit that we get from protein, you probably want to split that up into what I would use, what I used to say was at least three meals. I, I probably am going to say from now on at least two meals. The reason that I'm saying that is there was a recent research. Basically, the idea was that um, th that after a certain point, after a certain number of grams of protein and loose and and loosing whatever, um, you have maximized the muscle building benefit of this meal. And it used to be something like, you know, 25 grams of whey or like 40 grams in a mixed meal. We could say anywhere from like 30 to 40 grams of protein. And and what people thought was, well, if you eat more than that, then uh, it oxidizes and your body doesn't use that those grams of protein for anything. That's not true. Your body will use whatever you give it. And so we that was the first myth that was debunked where um, if you eat 100 grams of protein yet yeah, after about 40 grams, you've already maximized the benefits of, from a muscle protein synthesis response. But that's not the only thing your body uses amino acids for. Your, your body uses those things for hair, skin, nails, organ tissue, every tissue in the body. And that was the first myth. But the second myth was that, was that in and of itself, was that that limit of, of essentially, if I eat 40, any more than that won't benefit me from building muscle. What's funny is that that bar of what that number is, it's like, hey, once you eat this much, you've maximized it and you should have another meal later. That number has just keeps going up and up and up. It's like it was like 20, 20 grams of whey the first time around. It was like any more than that, have another meal later if you're trying to get jacked. Then it was 40. Then it was 60. Think of that. It was there was a, a study in the elderly where it was like 70. And most recently they did a study where they compared, I think it was zero to, to 40 to 100 or something, zero to 20 to 100. Don't quote me. All you need to know is that we still saw benefits of the of protein up to 100 grams. And so this limit of, um, you know, how much I can benefit from a muscle protein synthetic response, from a muscle building benefit response, it's somewhere between a lot higher than we thought and doesn't fucking exist. And so what I would say is that I still think protein is a daily target, but I used to be pretty hard nosed about it's got to be split over at least three meals so that you can get multiple boluses of maximizing that protein synthetic response. But I, I might, I think I'm, and now that I'm saying this, I am definitely less bullish on that now. And I will lean way more heavily on total daily number because the truth is most people aren't having, aren't doing OMAD. They're not doing one meal per day, having 200 grams of protein. Some people are. And I think for those people, there's probably some solace in seeing that study of like, oh, I'm probably not leaving, leaving a ton of gains on the table. What I will say is it's still not a bad idea if you're like really trying to check every box to have at least three meals a day with protein. And what, what's cool is like, that's not, that's not like, that's not a weird suggestion either. That's kind of how people eat anyway. It's not like we're, in, it's not like in order to do what might be optimal, you have to go outside of like what is kind of practical in your, in today's society. What I would just say is if you're, whatever, it's just a win for total daily protein. That's what I'll say. Yeah, absolutely. And even for people sitting here, like what they might be able to take from that is like, and kind of this overarching concept of like adherence and, you know, uh, from a practicality standpoint where you're able to do every single day is going to be the most important. If you're somebody sitting here and you eat two meals a day and you're part of the fasting crowd and you prefer to eat 80 grams of protein at every single meal and that works for you, like there's a great chance that you're getting the same benefits as somebody eating six meals a day with the perfect ratio of protein split across all those meals and snacks. And I think that's great. I think it's great for research. I think it goes, just goes to show that like 
hey, these overall concepts of like, am I getting in three, four days of training each week? Am I getting enough protein in every day? Am I doing it in a way that I enjoy or that is easier for me instead of me forcing this other thing that might not be as like sustainable over the long term? Um, you know, am I eating enough calories? Like all these bottom or um, kind of these uh, baseline minimums of these things, like comes down to an adherence standpoint and what you're able to practically do over time. And from a protein I think it's cool that we now know that like, Hey, even if you did eat one meal a day and you had 160 grams of protein, kudos to you for you're somebody that is able to do that. Like, Hey, you're actually getting a lot of cool benefits from that. As long as you're hitting your protein target for the day. And then if you're likely to stack five, six, seven days of that over the course of the week, we've kind of like hit this baseline minimum that we need to, to continue to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Now pairing that with the resistance training side of things, I know you oh, did. sorry, not to not to cut you off. That that yeah. study was a meal after a lift, yes. and that is a unique circumstance where that limit of how much protein you could probably benefit from probably gets enhanced because of the workout. It yep. was in like that. I think it was immediately post training. Uh, that doesn't mean you need to go and have a bunch of protein right after your lift. We're not saying that. I'm just saying that that is a limitation of the study. Um, but but you're right. It is a it's a soft win for not freaking out. If you had, if you forgot to eat breakfast and you're only having two meals a day, still focus on hitting your total, total daily number over the long term. It's still by far the most important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of confounding variables that go into these research studies. And again, if like people don't actually read the study, they take away the headlines. Like that's where you see the USA today news or the New York times. Like those are usually the types of articles that you see, um, just kind of extrapolating this like small finding and and not actually able to like disseminate that to the population in a way that like accounts for all these other variables and these things that can go into it. But yeah, I digress from, from a, from a nutrition standpoint. Okay. Protein calories. Great. Protein being a very important macronutrient. Um, from a training standpoint, you did a whole talk on this and I don't want you to spend 30 minutes. Cause I know you could probably talk for an hour about it, but when it comes to a lifting side, from a hypertrophy standpoint, what have we kind of seen um, is kind of another baseline minimum or something for people to keep in mind where it's like, hey, if I can get X amount of days or X amount of sets or volume over the course of the week, I'm going to get a majority of the benefits. Like where, where do we kind of see those numbers fall? Um, and we'll kind of go from there, but we'll start with that one. I think that's, it, it's, uh, you're right. We did, I did a talk on just like a minimalist approach to training uh, volumes. But the more I think about it, the more I, I, I tend to speak in practical terms. And what I would say is, is if you're brand new to training, you can see significant gains training two days a week. I, I, I stop at one times a week. One time a week is better than nothing, totally. But I just don't think anybody should expect to see amazing gains at anything they do one times a week. I'm not saying that that's not better than nothing. It is. I, I laugh because I'm I'm learning to speak Dutch, to be fluent, fluent at Dutch. And I started off like, I'd say 50% fluent and I go once a week and I'm getting better, but I've plateaued. I did it for a year. I've plateaued. I know that in order for me to get much better, I need, I need more, I need more stimulus. And so I just think it's, you know, people are like, well, what about one times a week? It's like, you didn't mention one time. It's like, yeah, well, if yeah, come on. Like, are we really expecting, I mean, nobody, even the most people that are like, anything's better than nothing. Anything is better than nothing. One time a week is better than zero fact, but like, if you're, you know, I'm not expecting anybody to get a huge gain there. So I usually say very practically two days a week. If you're brand new to training, you can make gains. If you're relatively muscular, not super duper mega jack, but like you have some muscle, you could probably maintain on two days a week. Um, 
And I think everybody on planet Earth can make gains at three days a week. Uh, four times a week is a lot. And you can see near optimal. And I think four is that tipping. And I'm going to I'm going to break down how days per week doesn't really say everything. But we're just going to start on a very top level because I think most people that's the first thing that they need to decide what they can do is how many times they can, how many bouts of exercise they can fit in. And then we'll talk about times per week and all that stuff or times per session. Um, but four times per week is that tipping point where, you know, it's hard to put a percentage on it, but I would say you get the vast majority of the muscle that the, the muscle building hypertrophy that's available to you at four days a week, going to five days a week, big, I mean, there's a diminishing return with every single additional thing that you do. The more stimulus you get of something, the less adaptations you're getting from it just across the board with all fucking stimuli in the body. And so that's how practically I would think of it. When, and I, I say days per week, and that, that isn't the most, like, if someone's like, just, oh, I train three days a week. How much am I growing muscle? It's like, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know how long you're doing it. I don't know how many sets you're doing, how close to failure, what your technique looks like. There's so many other moving parts. But on that top level, if you're doing logical training that was made by a professional, and I'll tell you right now, you, me, other of ones of our colleagues who write programs for hypertrophy, um, we're all going to have little differences, but I think we're all doing it all good enough. If you join my group program, I think it's the best one around, but guess what? I also think there's a million other people who make programs that are plenty good, good, well, good enough to build muscle for hypertrophy. So I do think that if, as, once you're meeting that bar of I'm on a program that's like logically created by someone who has a decent idea of what they're talking about, we can kind of look at days per week. Um, as a proxy, because we're assuming all those other variables are checked to a meaningful or a minimum effective dose, at least. Um, and so that's how I tend to talk about it. I think if you're training, we're looking in that like 45 to 75 minute range, four to six exercises per workout, two to four sets per exercise, six to 15 reps, two to four minute rest, you know, and, and, and I might be rattling off a lot of things, but if you're on a logical program, it's already doing all those things. Like any good program written by a professional who has any idea what they're talking about is checking those boxes. It's it's not difficult to write a program that's good enough for gains. And so I do think that we draw that line of like, hey, if you're new to training, two days a week is amazing. My dad just started training two days a week. Awesome. Fantastic. Um, you know, two years from now, though, I bet you he's not making gains at two days a week. The threshold just goes up and we all know that. So two days a week, if you're a newbie, you can make gains. If you're not mega jacked, you might be able to maintain. Three days a week, I probably think everybody barring like People at their genetic limits, crazy bodybuilders could make, could make gains at three days a week. Um, I think those same super jack people might be able to maintain on three days a week. And then four days a week, everybody's making crazy good gains. And then I think five days a week, you're making more gains if you can recover from it. But it's that's really the fence I sit on. Um, dealing with real people in real life, five days a week of training becomes a frequency. If one thing happens in your life and you miss one workout, you don't make it up. You know, you've one time your kid gets sick and you miss a workout. It's really tough to recover from that within the week, even four days a week. If you have like, if you're sick for two days, like, okay, you're not making all those workouts this week. So I really love four as that sweet spot for, for maximum, for maximum slash near maximum gains. I think three to four times a week is usually the people I work with. Uh, some combination of wanting to maintain uh, three times a week versus make really good gains at four times a week. And I'm not really even sure what the question was, but I'm done waffling. Oh, that was great. Yeah, that was great. And it kind of brings something to mind for me. Um, cause of course, like the people who are on a structured hypertrophy program, maybe working with a coach, maybe they can write their own programs. They're like, not in their head. Yes. Okay. I work out three days a week. I have this many, you know, uh, exercises per workout day. I go to the gym. I'm there at this, this amount of time I'm resting X amount of times, uh, between sets, but there's a lot of people out there and 
and maybe it's just the population that is attracted to me that I work with that I kind of um, get the opportunity to kind of like maybe transition into maybe more of what we're talking about a more structured hypertrophy program. There's a lot of people, um, I think thinking, Hey, I work out four times a week, but maybe it's in the form of a group class. Um, orange theory is just a big one in town. Um, we have F45 here as well. There's some other classes, maybe even CrossFit could be, you know, somewhat blanketed into this like group fitness type of environment. There's a lot of progress again, to be made. Like you said, your dad working out two days a week in the very beginning at whatever age he is, but similar to, to you speaking Dutch, right? Yeah. There's a capacity to how much that you could grow. Right. And then that, that requires more, um, um, maybe of a transition into something that's going to get you the results that you're continuing to look for. How would you, how would you kind of classify all of these things? If, if we have somebody who's sitting here doing four days a week of orange theory, can we even compare that to three, four days a week of hypertrophy? Um, why do people kind of see that progress, at least in the beginning in, in, this is kind of a weird loaded question. Um, I think you explain it really well. I'm kind of thinking of a, of, of an example of like the school analogy that you and I have talked about before. Um, just when it comes to training, the evolution of what you can get out of your training, this whole idea that our body adapts to the stimulus that we give it. But if you could kind of just put in a nutshell of like, okay, Hey, maybe hypertrophy isn't the exact same as your orange theory class. Maybe you're getting some benefit because you're lifting weights X, Y, and Z. Um, but what would you kind of say to somebody who's like, oh yeah, I'm working out orange theory four days a week. I'm going to get the same results as somebody else that's doing maybe something different or even two days a week of orange theory. If any of that makes sense. Sure. Sure. Let's start with that. Like in a very simply put orange theory is a bunch of different modalities. Uh, we're, not, so we're not picking on orange theory. Orange theory can be part of a super great health routine. It's high intensity training and you're, you're getting a lot of stimulus. Like it's not, there's nothing inherently wrong with orange theory. Totally fine. All good. I have plenty of people that I coach that still do some orange theory or whatever, not against it, but here's what we need to know is orange theory is a catch all. It's a kitchen sink. It's doing everything all together at once. It's lifting, it's running, it's abs. It's, and you're doing it all together. Usually with a high elevated heart rate, you, you know, they've, they've, from what I know, uh, they've introduced some classes that are less like that, a little bit more like lifting. So I don't even want to put orange theory in one bucket because there are some classes that are like more almost like a response to common criticism of it being a kitchen sink. But let's let's assume we're doing kitchen sink. We're doing we're running on the treadmill. And then we're going over doing rows. Then we're running on going over to the rower and then we're coming back and doing pushups. Or, and it's like high pace circuit training, high intensity heart rate, all this stuff. Um, you're getting some cardio. You're getting some lifting. You're getting some muscular endurance. You're sprinting, whatever. And basically when you don't have a lot of a certain adaptation, the, the threshold to, of the stimulus you would need to get better at that thing is very low. It's super simple. Like if you're, when you're a, 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 a you know, a toddler or whatever, and you go to school, you know, you're learning all the subjects at the same time. You know why you can do that? Cause you don't know shit about shit. You don't know shit about social studies and math and science. And, you know, you just need a little bit of that stuff. You don't, you don't need a, a PhD professor in each of them. You need one teacher who knows a little bit about them because you don't know anything. And you can get better at all of them at the same time because you don't know shit about any of them. And it's the same thing when a brand new person goes to Orange Theory. You're going to get better cardiovascular fitness. You're going to get better muscular endurance. You're going to get better peak power. You're going to get better hypertrophy. All those adaptations, you're going to get all of them. But at some point, the threshold needed to get better at each at any one of them goes up. The problem is in each of those classes, you're never actually able to focus on that one thing enough to get really great at it. There's a reason that if you are a professional runner, 
and you look at your week of training, like that's mostly what you're doing because you're trying to get even better at something. So you're going to spend a lot of time putting a lot of effort into that thing. Um, and so that is often what happens. The same thing with school. As you go through school, things get more specialized because you know, hey, I know a lot about this. In order for me to know even more, I need to spend more time on it. I need a specific class for it. I need a specific classroom with a specific kind of teacher, specific kind of homework, whatever. Um, and so, yeah, Orange Theory, even CrossFit, actually definitely CrossFit is a bit of a catch-all, bit of a kitchen sink where if you have no adapt, if you're brand new to exercise, you're going to get better at a lot of things all at the same time. But at some point, I think we all understand that um, to get better at one thing, the best way to do that is to not do a bunch of other things at the same time. And specifically when it comes to lifting weights, what ends up happening is there's just such a high cardio demand of the workout that the actual output that you get on your sets is much lower and more likely to be limited by your cardiovascular system. What I mean is like just very practically, I'm not, don't worry about the numbers, but let's say you could, you can do 10 pushups. Right? If you're fresh, you're nice and warmed up, rested, you can do 10 push-ups. Man, how many push-ups can you do coming right off of a 20-second all-out effort on the rower? I don't know, seven, six, eight maybe, maybe eight. That's awesome. But what you did was you got less than you would have. And so you got less of that, the benefits that you were after with the push-up. Maybe that's pec growth or delt growth or tricep growth. Um, and that's happening on repeat where you're never actually able to give one specific modality all of your effort because you're doing a bunch of stuff at the same time which again is fine but if you've been doing orange theory for like five years and you're like i look exactly the same like that is what i would expect frankly um outside of you you know clean you know improving your nutrition maybe losing weight whatever but i don't bet people lose, gain mus muscle in orange theory after the first year but you might not be you might not care about gaining as much muscle as possible you might care about like enjoyment of the class and uh, staying overall fit and, and you, you enjoy the people you're with and doesn't always need to be about getting as jacked as possible. But yeah, if you're looking to build muscle, orange theory for it, for some, you know, for a beginner is going to do that, but you know, only for a time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. I love that analogy. And it, yeah, it just goes to show that like, again, if you want to get better at something, you got to do that shit more often. Like it, it sounds simple, but that's the reality of it. And again, I get that there's an enjoyment factor here. Um, I get that there's like, again, if we talk about adherence and what you're more likely to show up to every week, man, there's a lot of people out there sitting at like, Hey, yeah, the idea of going into a gym scares me and, and orange theory is a welcoming environment. And I, again, we talk about orange theory. I, I somewhat partnered with them and gave nutrition talks for them. Uh, I, I'm by no means shitting on orange theory. I think it's a great exercise modality again, but if we have to, to look in the grand scheme of things, if you're after more, uh, a muscle building, uh, goals. If you're looking to improve a lot of, uh, maybe your physique and you want to target certain muscle groups, you want to build better glutes. Like again, there's a capacity that how much you could grow if you just do an orange theory class your whole life. Um, and again, like Jordan said, the limiting factor eventually, and usually, uh, well, from even day one, when you walk into orange theory to day 100 or whatever, how many classes you do, the limiting factor is probably going to be your, your, you know, your cardiovascular system. It's not going to be the main muscle group that you're targeting, especially when we talk about, Hey, you do the floor, which is where you're doing TRX bands or you're lifting up dumbbells or you're doing your squats. Like a lot of times there's just, there's no rest even between the floor section of that, you know, workout, um, which kind of brings me into this next section of like, what are the, what would you say the biggest differences are when you go, when you have somebody, Hey, four days of orange theory, whatever class that they're doing, they're going to a hypertrophy program. 
and I've talked about this before, but like it, I bring this up because it scares the shit out of people, right? Because people don't think they're doing enough sometimes because they they have this perception like I have to be dripping sweat and I have to get fucking 22 splat points for my workout to be deemed a successful, right? Going into and we could, you know, maybe allude to, hey, we have to rest. Why we rest? You know, some of these things can play into it. But what is the biggest differences from like an orange theory if somebody were to do all hypertrophy training eventually? And then how would you approach somebody to be like, hey, that's okay. Like it's, it's okay. Like the results that you're getting are somewhat reliant on this for these reasons, but that's kind of where my head is going right now. Cause a lot of times people love the workout. They love orange theory. It's gotten them some results, but they're still not happy with where they want to be. Right. And a lot of times it takes going to partially going into the gym or doing a home program or fully going into the gym and not doing any more orange theory, doing it supplementally throughout the month. Um, have you had experience with that? I know you have, but, um, what's kind of the, the spiel that you give to people to kind of help them overcome that fear of like feeling like they're not doing enough eventually, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the big change is going to be, you're going to be less exhausted at the end of a hypertrophy session than you will be at the end of a, of an orange theory session. That is a fact. You will not be huffing and puffing and dripping and uh, on the floor and gasping and throwing up and maybe throwing up, but, um, that's not going to happen in a hypertrophy session. Um, and that's kind of the point. And I think that that's, you know, I'm sure as the words come out of my mouth, I hear you saying this on the podcast, I'm sure of like, you know, instead of chasing that sensation of feeling exhausted, what we're trying to do for hypertrophy, I mean, is we're trying to take a, ideally a single muscle or a group of, of muscles close to failure. And then we are trying to fully recover so that we can do that again. And that fully recover thing is the unique part. Cause I'm sure when you're doing your pushups in orange theory, you might take them close to failure, your pushups. You might go until you can't do any more. That's great. But what you don't do is you don't rest fully so that you can do that again and make the target muscle and not your respiratory system, your cardiovascular system, make those things the limiting factor. And so the big thing that people get is they get nervous that they're not tired. They say the workouts are easy. And in some ways the workouts will be easier. And they're nervous that they're going to burn less calories and gain weight. The irony is that I'm just, I, I just bet you that you don't need to change anything and nothing will change. What I mean is like, I'm not saying that you're not burning more calories in an orange theory workout than a hypertrophy workout. You are. But it's not so much more on a net balance. And when you consider energy compensation, and when you maybe consider a tiny, tiny bit of benefit from having more muscle, I, I don't, if you're afraid of, oh, I'm going to go do hypertrophy, which means I'm going to sweat and burn less calories, which means I'm going to gain weight. I've never, ever, ever seen it pan out that way. Um, I've, I've never, ever, ever seen somebody go from four days orange theory to four days hypertrophy, change nothing else and gain weight just because they are burning that many less calories in that one hour per day. It's more complicated than that. There's a little bit of energy compensation. Um, you know, you might move less later in the day if you did orange theory in the morning, you know, all I'm saying is I don't think that that should be a, a pain point, a fear factor for people making that switch. I know that you're going to feel a little less exhausted. You know, we can talk about psychologically why you're pursuing that. We can talk about the fact that that in and of itself is why you're not building muscle. Um, you know, we, we can talk about what kind of goals you have and you can compartmentalize. You can have pieces in your life, workouts in your life that are cardiovascularly challenging. Um, you, you do better to have some workouts that are meant as, as cardiovascular work and some workouts that are meant as hypertrophy and a little bit less of a kitchen sink approach. And so sometimes I'll have clients that are like that 
they maybe they keep one class in per week because I'm not as much as I want to be like, you're chasing sensation. You shouldn't do that. Like in the same breath, like I'm, I'm fine with you, like enjoying feeling like you did something hard and accomplished and, and, and like you're tired, like there's nothing necessarily wrong with enjoying that experience. And so I'm happy with you still, still having that in your life, but yeah, you're, you're worried that you're going to burn less calories. You don't, you don't feel like the workouts are hard. Like the irony is like, those are all the things if you are making this choice to build muscle, those are all the things that have to happen. It's like the things that you're worried about are the exact reasons that you're going to build more muscle. It's like, you're not going to be cardio. You're not going to be huffing and puffing the whole workout. You're not going to be absolutely destroyed at the end of the workout so that you can string together maybe more of these workouts. And you're going to learn instead of making my system taxed, like I do in Orange Theory, I need to take and make each individual. It's a it's a, it's an interesting shift in psychology of when I get into the Orange Theory, I'm go, go, go versus I'm going to be in this set for 40 seconds or so, this, this set of bicep curls. And my goal is to make my biceps the limiting factor, make them hurt just for these 40 seconds, compartmentalize. And then I'm going to rest long enough so I can have a really good performance at that set again. Yep. I was nodding my head the whole time there. And I, uh, I can't help but think you bring up a really good point of this, uh, this fear of gaining weight or this desire to lose weight. And a lot of times that driving the decision-making that people are, have around what exercise modality that they want to choose to do. And again, orange theory, again, we're talking about it here a lot, but it's a great example of a type of workout that gives you that instant gratification of like, oh shit, I, this, the monitor told me that I burned 840 calories today. Like that to a lot of people is very validating. It's very, um, I don't want to say it's this instant gratification, but it's just something that people can look forward to. They kind of get accustomed to seeing that. And they think that is the thing that's going to drive fat loss. Right. And, and the thing where resistance training, I'm not going to say it gets a bad rap, but it gets overlooked in a lot of cases because we don't emphasize the calorie burn, right? Like that's not something that honestly, if we're being real here, like you choosing to exercise because of the calories that you burn, then we're kind of completely missing the point of what it means to exercise in the first place. Um, and that's not, it, I, that's my opinion, of course, but that's also a fact too, that like we're getting so many health benefits from exercising alone, but calorie burn shouldn't be the thing that drives that decision the most. That shouldn't always be your first priority. Um, but man, when people come to the realization, like, Hey, I want to go on, a, I want to lose fat or I'm not happy with where I want to be, man, they start tracking, uh, how many workouts they do a week. They go to the thing, they track how many calories they're burning a day. Uh, it's people, the sleep, sleep, uh, tracking analytics is then something you've explored, something you pushed me to explore. I created a podcast on it, but looking at HRV, um, fucking looking at your menstrual cycle, looking at your sleep score, looking at your blood glucose response to all these different meals that we're eating, man, all these things like get, kind of get in the way of what's most important when it comes to fat loss, which is how many calories that you're actually eating per day. Um, which is one cool because you realize that, Hey, you have a lot more control over this and it, and it could be easier than what you're making it out to be. But the other thing is, is and it's also really difficult to do that in the same breath too. And, and the fact that like, Hey, yeah, maybe you burn 700 calories in one workout session, but you know how fucking easy it is to eat 700 calories after your workout session, right? Or you're making a smoothie and you're putting in the nuts and all these things and you're eating a thousand calorie smoothie, but you, it's all good. And they're all whole foods and you're clean eating, right? Um, it's the calories that you put into your body that drive and dictate fat loss the most. And that's why just kind of circling this back, 
I think Orange Theory is great. I think all these workout classes are great, especially if you're doing any type of activity. There's always going to be health benefits that come from that. But I just, I don't want people to think that like we're choosing exercise strictly based on the fact that we are trying to burn calories from that. Cause that's usually going to discourage a lot of people from even exploring or trying to go into the gym and trying to do the more of a, a resistance training type of, um, true resistance trainings type of a workout program. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I think, I think I would just, that's what came to mind. So. Yeah, no, it's just super well said. I, I, we were both, we're both on the, the side of, you know, doing things you enjoy and all movement is good. And Orange Theory can have a place, and I just I so have people in my life who love it. So I'm very in tune with what the what the upsides and what people see in it, and I love that, and I love that. But I think that there's a separate conversation between oh I like it, and it always happens when you post about something on social media. It's like people are like oh but I like it, and I really like it, or this is great. It's totally separate argument and super duper valid. But what we are just talking about is like it's not as good for building muscle, and we just need to all acknowledge that and reconcile how does that match up with what I want with my goals and and that's it man you should just be like I care you should just know what type of training yields what kind of results and you do with that what you want you combine that which is the physical result I get with the all the other reasons you would exercise what you enjoy doing what you feel good doing what you feel good doing like you feel good afterwards I've had somebody just DM me was like asking about like a 38 Pilates challenge and, and she was like, what are your thoughts on it? I'm like, what are you doing it for? Because that's the only way I can answer whether or not this, if she's like, oh, I want to build muscle. No, it's a dog shit idea. If you want to like, uh, you know, become more mobile or something like I have some issue with that as an argument too. But like, if you're like, oh, I'm just, I have a reformer in my house I don't use. And, you know, I've always felt it super challenging and very fun. I'm like, you should absolutely do that then, you know, like, so there is just an element of understanding why you're doing something, what the benefit of something is and great, allocate your time accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, this has all been so good. Uh, coming up on our hour here, I want to be super respectful of your time. I have one final closing question. Uh, I know you at one point in your life thought you were going to be a lawyer, and uh, I want you to channel that inner uh, attorney in yourself right now. But let's say you're sitting on the stand right now, and you have somebody who is exercising. Um, they are, you know, maybe they're doing all the things. Maybe they're doing predominantly orange theory. They're a little bit afraid to get into the gym. They don't know how to start. Um, we're going to plug your group program here at the very end. Always a good transition into that. But if you had to give an argument to somebody, short argument of why the pursuit of building more muscle, why the pursuit of even if you going to the gym one or two days a week or buying a set of dumbbells on a bench at home, like why that would be worth your time and your investment and your energy over doing, and again, we can't compare these. It's, it's not apples to apples, right? But you have somebody who's like, okay, I'm curious about this. I know I should do it, but I'm scared to get into it. What are some reasons why, why you would like have this argument of like, you should do that. And these are the reasons why, whether it's health, whether it's vanity, like whatever comes to mind for you, what would be your argument to somebody sitting here? That's kind of undecided on that. Yeah, I think that there's where, you know, people are listening to your podcast. They care about, they care about health as a very general topic. And there's there's lifespan and there's health health span. There's how long I live and 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 the quality of those years, right? The quality of life. And if we look at the, I think a lot of people are like, oh, this fights disease. This fights disease. Like lifting, you know, it's good for insulin resistance and blood pressure and all this stuff. And that's great. And that those fighting of diseases is more a notch on the belt of living longer. It's also working as quality of life too. But 
from the quality of life perspective, I don't know what your audience is like, but the, and I think this goes for everyone, but I'm going to make a, I'm going to, I'm going to make it a pitch more towards the postmenopausal women with which all of the women listening either are or will be at one point. There's just nothing coming as hard and as fast for your quality of life. When I say quality of life, I mean your physical autonomy, your ability to like do physical things on your own terms as sarcopenia and osteopenia osteoporosis. And, and that's not, I'm a, you know me, I'm, I'm a cardio bunny these days. So the, 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 how being in better cardiovascular shape affects longevity and quality of life, I'm well aware, but there's nothing coming as hard as, and as fast as at your physical autonomy, your, your ability to live your own physical life on your own terms as hard and as fast as osteopenia and sarcopenia. And there is nothing out there anywhere near. There's no Pilates or bar class or yoga that is going to replace resistance training, resistance training, resistance training. I don't care if it's a hypertrophy plan or like a, a weightlifting class or powerlifting. Like I just, there is no replacement for that thing. Um, and it just, yes, we can go down the physiological stuff, better for insulin resistance, blood pressure, even even the mental health side of things, which I think you, you I wouldn't even go down that route. I think you can get that from a lot of different modalities, but X, lifting weights is just unique insofar as you, you can't get the bone density benefits. You can't get anywhere near the kind of bone density benefits or the kind of, you know, fighting against muscle degradation, uh, uh, atrophy as we get older, like you can with resistance training. It is just so unique that I don't care if you like it or not. Um, you should have it in your life in a minimum effective dose to fight those things. Um, as a person now, you know, just because as a postmenopausal woman, that shit starts to happen really fast. You're still better off having more when that time comes and having already built that habit. And so, you know, this isn't like a fear mongering of like, if you haven't started now, you're screwed. We see people at all ages 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 make gains. Seriously, there was, I forgot what study was. I just saw 80 year olds making gains. It's awesome. But the best time to start is now. And, and if you're going to, if something's going to degrade later in life, you, you best have more of it, you know? So that would be my pitch on the stand is that there just is no replacement. Listen, if you want to be, the thing is like, if you want to be cardiovascularly fit, which is like the other side of this coin, you can do that in so many modalities. You could bike, you could row, you could swim, you could play sports, you could run, you could do the Stairmaster, you could do elliptical. I mean, we have an endless way of getting your heart rate up, but there is no replacement for resistance training when it comes to fighting sarcopenia, osteopenia, loss of physical autonomy, loss of like physical competence, fighting against falls, fighting against breaks, the sort of stuff that people don't think about until it's too late. Amen, dude. Amen. Yeah. And uh, one word that came to mind too, just because I, I see it a lot. I know you do too, but this uh, concept of like functional training and like you should be doing functional movements and all these things, like everything that you just said, everything that we're talking about when it comes to hypertrophy training, when it comes to just lifting weights, getting, getting weights in your hands, that is the most functional thing that you could fucking do for yourself throughout the course of your life, right? Like getting a dumbbell, getting your cables, getting a, a barbell, like whatever it is that we're using taking your muscles through their full range of motion in a direction that they're designed to go, right? And challenging them at different resistance profiles are all things that are going to be the most functional for you from a quality of life standpoint, as you refer to, um, from a vanity-driven standpoint. Um, and then also you just being able to stay healthy as fuck for as long as you can. Like there's just, there's nothing that gets better than that. And you doing a, a squat into a dumbbell curl into a fucking shoulder press is just not the same. So people out there, 
promoting that and, you know, reels that we all see online of like, do this functional hit workout, man, that's, those are the things that I just, if anyone takes anything from this podcast, it's like how to be a little bit more, um, of an informed decision maker when it comes to your health, when it comes to your training on what you get from the, from the training regimen that you do and starting to do things that just coincide with what you want to get out of, you know, your fitness, but also for the rest of your life too. And, and there's nothing better than, than hypertrophy training. So thank you for wrapping that up, dude. I really appreciate that. Tell people where they can find you. Um, I mentioned your group training program. I know you have a podcast, just plug anything all also listed in the show notes, of course. Um, but I know you have a lot of stuff to, to talk about. Yeah. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me on super fun. And I'm, I'm, um, I have already some good thoughts brewing for having you on the episode. I don't know if you picked a time yet, but we'll do that out offline in a sec. Um, yeah, I have a I have a, a group program for people who train at home or at the gym. Everything is in links in my bio. You can find out more. You can always hit me up in the DMs if you're curious about like what equipment you need or whatever. I actually think there's all that is also in the in the in my uh, bio, but whatever. Um also have a podcast, whatever. We'll plug it. Check the show notes. Don't waste your time. Amen, dude. I appreciate you so much, Jay. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thank you again for listening to this episode. If you found value and enjoyed it, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media. If you do, make sure you tag me so I can say thanks. Or if you're on iTunes, scrolling down and leaving a five-star review would be much appreciated. And if you ever want to get in touch with me, you can always find me on Instagram at LukeSmithRD. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. I'll see you on the next episode.